0: Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is
1: alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the
0: lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I am honored to be joined by Dr. Ramona Hyman. Thanks so much for talking with all of us today.
2: Thank you. I'm glad and I feel blessed to be here to have this conversation.
0: Well, it's great to see you again. And we are celebrating the publication of African American. I'm holding up the book right now. Seventh Day Adventist healers in a multicultural nation. Congratulations on uh, putting this uh, out there and uh, into the hands of Adventists. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this book?
2: Yes, the um, the book "African American Seventh Day Adventist Healers in a Multicultural Nation" uh, came out of and it was inspired by a conference. That was held at Loma Linda University. I worked at Loma Linda University for five years uh, in the School of Religion. And so while there, um, I was inspired uh, by we have a we have a tradition in terms of in terms of our culture, um, community, in terms of platforms and speaking to. Um, what has taken place with African-Americans in this country. And so one of the things that had been on my mind is this, that we have to begin a conversation about African-American people. And that conversation has to begin with us in terms of who we are as healers. Right? Yeah. And so... It was it was inspired out of that conference, and that of course how is how the book came about. Um, as you know, um, the conference was in 2013, and so after that, I said, "Boy, we need a book to come out of that." And so I wrote the proposal for it. Um, Talked with the writers. Um, and asked them if they would agree to uh, be in the book, they said yes, and I started shopping the book around. Mm. And so um at the initial uh conference, of course, we had the full support of the School of Religion at Loma Linda University, the Loma Linda University Church um also supported us and it you know grew from there. Um but this the the big thing is that there needs to be a conversation about african americans and it needs to begin with the concept that we have been healers in this country yeah that is that is so central to my consciousness
0: yeah let's dr- drill down into that concept of healers what does that word mean to you in this in this context and how have african american Adventists been um, part of this this healing process.
2: Okay, so if we think about in a very practical way, the uh, World Health Organization's uh, definition of healing, and we say that a person can be can have an illness and be healed at the same time. Mm. Okay, so if we think about um, African-Americans in terms of healing, we were the illness is that we were enslaved. We were enslaved. Mm -hmm. Oh, that word. We were slavery was put on us. And so it created a. An illness there. Okay. It created a woundedness. Yeah. However, in spite of that, African-American people have overcome.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: I love Dr. Rock in his, his chapter. And he talks about the healed by something better. Right. Mm -hmm. So In spite of the fact, and this is, you know, we all some, like I might have a a headache. My dad used to say, you know, my spirit is willing, but my body is physically ill. Mm -hmm. Physically, we were enslaved, but our spirits were good. And so that's where this concept comes from.
0: You, um, right here in your introduction, Um, if there's a lesson to be garnered from this collection of essays, it's this, and it kind of continues on this, uh, idea of what it means to be a wounded healer is kind of what I'm hearing from you. You write, and I always enjoy reading your writing, Ramona, an authentic and celebratory dialogue about African-Americans who have been systematically othered because of race needs to find its way onto the marquee of the Christian consciousness and into a systematic plan to implicitly improve race relations in the church and society. Uh, What are you getting at there?
2: Okay, what I'm getting at here is that we need to celebrate. Okay, I I want to give you, I'm trying to be careful about the example that I give you. Traditionally, when we have conversations about people who look like me, they don't begin with celebration. Mm. They begin with problem.
0: Yeah.
2: Right? So let's just imagine this. It's the If the first conversation that we have, is a conversation that celebrates how is that different from a conversation that begins with us as a problem? Yeah. You come to the conversation with a different spirit. Mm -hmm. You come to the conversation with a different type of vocabulary.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: The text is different. It's all, it's, it's different.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah.
2: So that's what I mean by saying, yes, we have been other because we were enslaved. Amiri Baraka, one of my mentors, even the fathers of the black arts movement. Yeah. One yeah. of the things that Baraka says is that after slavery, they didn't quite know what to do with us. Right? Mm-hmm. So. They continued seeing us one as not enslaved but as slaves, and so the conversation about us was not a good conversation, right?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, that so
2: then they had to figure out what to do with us. But is it my question? Is it them who have to figure out or do I need to lead the wounded people, not black people, wounded Caucasian people, and show them this is how you celebrate me.
0: Hmm.
2: Uh, this is why I need to be celebrated.
0: That's beautiful. I I really I feel like that fits so much uh, fits very naturally into. Uh, a sort of healthy theology, in that so much of our language is about celebrating God. We go to church to worship God, um, and what if we pay attention to what's happening there in the New Testament? We're reminded that we are the body of Christ. So if we're celebrating God, how do, how can we do that? We really need to be celebrating each other and especially folks who have perhaps felt not included in the body of Christ at a full level. So, to really worship God is more than just singing the doxology again and uh, saying amen to the pastor. It's really in a kind of global sense, a corporate sense, making sure that we're celebrating uh, including and, and, and I think out of that, we really enrich our, our, our the, what it means to worship. I mean, if you, you know, if I'm having a great time at church, it's not just because I hear a good sermon. It's because I'm with people that I love, who love me, and together we're clearly on a journey together. So, I, I really appreciate this idea of celebration. What does celebration mean to you?
2: And you know what, we can be, and we can, we can to celebrate each other is to honor each other. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And we, we can do that very easily. Another person who really influenced my, my life is, is Virginia Durr, um, who she was Rosa Parks' best friend. And she's one of the people who, when Rosa Parks was arrested, she went down to the police station to help make bail for Rosa Parks. I will never forget Mrs. Durr said to me, we are all Americans. How does that relate to celebration? We can celebrate each other. It may be a different cultural makeup. We might tie our shoe in a different way and we can celebrate each other. Mm-hmm. So for me, the celebration is the honoring, the appreciation, the giving, the giving, rendering uh, respect where respect is due. It, it is just so important. I, and I can do that as an African-American because I understand how to celebrate my own people mm-hmm, therefore, I can celebrate other people, okay, because I'm always looking through that lens i
0: I really like that idea of celebrating other people it, you know you you did that with this book here you took the you took the time to put this through and judging by the fact that it took a few years, I'm guessing that it wasn't always an easy process. You had to put a lot of thought into it and perhaps a little struggle. Um, What, when you, as you look back on that journey, what, what sort of, what's, you know, as you're, as, as you're thinking about folks that we should pay attention to more and understand more of this history of African-American Adventist healers, what are some of the things that you think we, the, the, you know, the church would benefit from recognizing this history? What sort of things perhaps have we lost by not understanding this history? Um, what are your thoughts?
2: I don't want to talk about loss. You mm. want to talk about what we can gain. Great. Yeah. So I believe that what we can gain in terms of the, the history is an appreciation for uh, who we are and what we are as a church. Because the church does not have a singular history. The church is because every single cultural group. Now, mind you, I'm speaking about African-Americans. The church is because every single cultural group in our church. So, if we learn and appreciate each group, that helps us to understand our church even better. Mm-hmm. So, to give you an example, um, the chapter by um, by Pollard in the book.
0: Yeah, the gives this, structure and function. Is that the one? Right.
2: Which gives this keen history of the Black conferences. So in understanding that, that, I mean, that is a a crucial contribution to the church. Huge. You pull out Black conferences and you got this big, wide space, right? But you understand Black conferences, their their historical, their cultural and spiritual purpose. Then what happens is, you begin to understand parts of the history of the church, which is so crucial because then if you have an ethnic group that you have never met before, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: that might help you to approach that group in, of course, a different kind of way you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so, so it's what we can gain. Okay. What we can gain. I'm always into what we can gain. One of my colleagues said, Hyman, you are sometimes so Pollyanna. (laughs) And I'm into the game. I'm into into the game. Um, Yeah. I hope, I hope that answered your question.
0: Yeah. You know, maybe let me read a, a uh, line here that I thought was helpful. Um, where he's he's sort of talking about, um, I mean, it's a massive uh, chapter. yes, so uh, Leslie Pollard, uh, and I think anyone who is sort of, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the history of regional conferences, um the structure of them, and their role in the Adventist Church. So I think, you know, buy this book here. I'm selling a book for you here. Yeah, I appreciate uh, it. And definitely read this chapter uh, before, um, you know, opining about this uh, history. Uh, he In this conclusion, he writes, if we wish to discuss more effective structures for accomplishing the mission to Black America within the polity of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that conversation is welcomed, but it's disingenuous, at worst, and counterproductive at best, to selectively label regional conferences as examples of disunity and organizational segregation while overlooking other mission particularized structures in the NAD. So, I think a very provocative article that uh, provides a lot of history and statistics that support, um, uh, I think, a a really um, deeper understanding of not just how the church works, but how humanity works, um, and ways that we can take our values and, in some way, um, work them, um, hopefully, towards uh, you know, as they say, our higher self, uh, achieving our our higher ideals and and our higher selves.
2: Yeah, and it's you know, it's an it's an affirmation. It it shows affirmation. I, I never forget, I'm sure you're familiar with Langston Hughes that says that mm-hmm. one day somebody's going to write about me and it may be me. But <laughs> so when we think about and we think about um, uh, regional conferences, regional conferences are saying it's going to be me. Yeah. Not someday somebody's going to write about me. It is going to be me who's going to do the work, which rightfully that is who should be doing the work. That, you know, if we go again back to um, Amiri Barak and the writers of the Black Arts Movement, one of the things that they said, they were my mentors, they tutored me, is that we have to do the work for ourselves on ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's what they're saying in terms of regional conferences. I agree with you this is a chapter that everyone should read before they make a comment about regional conferences. I'm not trying to sell a book, but maybe I am. am. So it's, um, yes, 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 yes. Well,
0: you know, you let's, let's transition a little bit and talk about not me, but you in this case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've, I've appreciated your writing, your contributions, not just to Adventism, but to America. And you are a poet among many things. And I'd love for us to just take a moment and maybe get creative here. Um, How did you find a voice within the poetic arts?
2: Wow. Um, I I studied with Sonia Sanchez. And Sonia Sanchez is one of, for those people who don't know, is one of the mothers of the Black arts movement.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: When I was an undergraduate student, at uh, Virginia Union University, I heard that Sonia Sanchez was going to be teaching at Temple University. Mm-hmm. And so I've always I've always written. And so I, I told my parents, I said, I have to transfer to Temple. Sonia is going to be there. And so they were saying, well, you may not be able to get into her class. I said, I'm getting into her class. And so I, I went to Temple and I, I studied I studied with Sonia and the rest is history. Um, it has it has shaped me in terms of my approach to teaching. She has uh, shaped me in terms of my my commitment in terms of a tradition. Uh, and so that's how you know I found my. But then. Um, After that, I, of course, soon after I became an Adventist and I went to Andrews. Mm -hmm. I was at Howard and I became an Adventist and I said, oh, I got to I got to graduate from an Adventist institution. Um, And then I moved south. That is where my voice was real. I'm talking about my voice. Mm -hmm. Um, I always say that, you know, that God calls us into places and we are not sure we just need to go there. And it has truly, 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 um, (laughs) it has shaped my voice. Um, I was, um, I began, if you notice in terms of my writing, uh, Dr. Joyce says this, uh, Dr. Joyce says this, Dr. Joyce Joyce is a critic. And she says, um, and I'm quoting her, she says, Hyman challenges readers to explore a poetic imagination grounded in a feel for the Southern landscape, African-American literary and political history, Black spirituality, and a creative fusion of Black folk speech with a Euro-American poetic vernacular.
0: Mm, Love it.
2: Joyce, Joyce said that. (laughs) she said that i did not say that um and that is truly my voice and i found it coming south
0: Hmm. you know it's so important to uh, recognize the role of regions in Mm -hmm. um crafting who we are after that i feel like i want to hear some poetry by you do you mind sharing
2: don't mind i would love to share um if you don't you don't mind um one of my my favorite um, please uh, people uh i would i wrote this poem i wrote this poem about viola gregg lauso
1: mm.
2: and uh it's called the beauty shop story great speaking of viola gregg lauso It was a Thursday afternoon. I was sitting in the blue chair at Aunt Dot's hair shop, waiting for the girl to wash my hair when that white woman rolls up in my eyes, rolls up. I could not get her pale face out of my brown eyes. Her face was huge. Big curls, huge, starched in hairspray, huge. I sunk down in that blue chair. Who was this woman? A blood relative I never made acquaintance with. You know, the kind who show up from a long, long way when a will is being passed around the table at the family reunion for the one family member assigned to do what the legacy commands. I'm sitting in that blue chair at Aunt Dot's hair shop. I witnessed heads being washed, I watch fake hair snatched out, and all the while I see the white pale woman rising up in my blind eyes. Who is she? I see her driving down Highway 80. It's dark night. She's in the car with the boy. Is that Leroy Moulton in that car? He's scared. They scared. No, I'm Freedom. Coming here in hate, ruin up behind them, that white woman pushing down, down on the gas, driving 70 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, 90 miles an hour, knowing freedom, hearing hate, shooting into her car. Leroy sees. Leroy knows who done it? I rise up from the blue chair. I tell the girl I'll be back for her to wash my hair. I'm breathing, breathing freedom. Because of the pale woman hanging in my brown eyes. Who's she? A blood relative, an American. Her name's Viola, Greg, Lauso, and she's dying for my right to vote. Mm. Yeah.
0: Wow. That was beautiful. I was transported there. Thank you so much. What an honor to have you read that.
2: Yeah, that's um. Uh, I was introduced to her work by a friend and I traditionally I, I'm an introvert, I'm not, hmm. you know, public. I wouldn't have guessed. Yeah. And, um, and I wrote that poem and, They had some type of function at Oakwood and her daughter came. Mm. And so I it wasn't in a book at that time and I gave it to her on a piece of paper. And I said, this is for your mom. And years later.
0: What a beautiful
2: gift. I tell you, years later, you know how we have struggles when we're trying to figure out what is my purpose. And I was at Loma Linda and I was sitting in in front of a grocery store, just sitting there trying to figure out what am I doing here? My phone rang. I had the same cell phone for umpteen years and it was her daughter. And she said that 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 poem helps her get through sometimes. And I said, you never know why you write what you write or why you are called to write what you write but it's going to touch somebody. So as I, I share with the students, the poem no longer belongs to you. Mm-hmm. It belongs to the planet. And so, you know, just push yourself away from the poem because it is no longer yours. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I love that idea. It's a gift. Um, and it,
2: yeah. uh,
0: you just put it on the waters and see where it goes.
2: Exactly. Wow. That's a poem. <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
0: Do you mind reading another one?
2: Sure. Sure. I um this one I I read uh, I'll just tell a story with it. I uh and my work, of course, is on my dissertation is on the Montgomery Bus Boycott. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm doing, a, working on a book actually now on the boycott. I do a presentation on a boycott. Well, years before I was doing my dissertation work, even I was a speaker for the state on Rosa Parks. So I had gone down to uh, Alabama State to speak. I was nervous because I'm from Philadelphia. I wanted, Alabama State is in Montgomery, Alabama. It is the boycott school. Yeah. So I was wondering if I would have my facts right. Well, in the audience was a woman. She said, Virginia Durr wants to meet you. And so um, I said, okay. And she took me to Mrs. Durr's house. I was 35, then I'm getting ready to be 65. And so I wrote this poem as a result of our conversation. Photograph. Virginia Durr. I enter your room knowing only who they say you are from outside the inner circle. Books stack deliberately on the table telling tales you know so well. Your lips, a stained glass prism speak to me. I join the tender throb of history in your voice. I walk through it I become it. You grow the American I did not know myself to be, right there in your voice.
0: Mm. Love that uh, vision of uh, books stacked deliberately. Thank you.
2: Yeah, and it, they were stacked, you know, in her in her living room, and we sat and 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 we talked it. It, um, we, we have those, and I'm sure you have experienced this those moments that forever change us. Forever change us. I go to, for instance, I vote every election Me because too. of my, my dad, Virginia Durr, and Viola Greg Laiuso. Mm. She said, We are all Americans. That was the best message she
0: gave me. Um, When you're, how do you know you, you know, you have an experience. When do you, when does it go from experience? You're standing somewhere, you're talking with someone to a work for you. When does does it, does it, does it sort of happen slowly or do you think I'm, I'm, there's something in this encounter that I want to express in some way. Is it instantaneous? Does it take a, a while for that to, to um sort of nurture itself?
2: You know, I have um I think the way it happens for me. Um I I have an idea in terms of what is what is calling me into the writing process and right now i'm i'm kind of sh- struggling of course um with this because i'm i'm on a path to write something that i believe i'm being called into writing but i've never written if you notice my work personally about myself right so in terms of the work the, the work the, the work that i have out now um there is i think a, a something that calls me into writing a piece. So for example, uh after meeting Mrs. Durr, I knew I wanted to write something about that experience. I did not know how it was going to enter the page. So I have a it's not a joke, but I guess it, I, I, I present it as a joke to, to students. Is that I ask the poem or I ask the piece how it wants to be written. And then it pours itself onto the page. And then I learned this from, from reading Toni Morrison. Mm. Um, the Blue Asai is my favorite novel, by the way. Mm. Is that I line by line, I listen, and I think this is why it takes me so long to write, I listen to what the words are saying, how they move together, how they come together. And if it feels right, this is not an intellectual experience, then I it, it's there. You know, it it's there. Um, To give an example, right now, I'm working on a collection of essays on the Montgomery Bus Boycott of 1955. And one of the chapters is on the miscegenated consciousness of American people. So I'm struggling with, should it be miscegenated consciousness? a consciousness miscegenated, okay so what after you looking look up the words you know a mm-hmm. couple of times okay but which sounds sounds flows okay what which one of those words would just reach inside the reader not just intellectually but the feel of it And I think that should happen in an essay as well as a poem. You know, the same thing if we're watching a a great, uh, a good movie and we keep coming back to that. That's the same thing.
0: Mm. I love it. Thank you so much for going into your process. It's an honor, I think, always to hear an artist talk about how they work and, um, uh, I think the way that you're connecting, uh, it's interesting you're talking about consciousness because I think the, the way that um, art works um, is to, well, to loop back to this healing idea. I think it, it actually works um, behind the scenes for us. And if we're paying attention to the beauty in our world, um, even about difficult things, but something that beautifully sort of gets through our barriers, which I think art does at at its yes. best. Um, then it uh, kind of does does its work behind the scenes, kind of like the Holy Spirit. You're not always aware of the transformation that's taking place, but um, if we open ourselves to the aesthetic, then I think our consciousness grows in some in some profound, um, and spiritual way,
2: yeah. And you know, it's some. Sometimes it's not even the things that um, we think may do it for us. Uh, years and years ago, I was blessed to um to be in a room with with um, Amiri Baraka, Sonia Sanchez, and Larry Neal. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and 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 Sonia Sanchez actually took us to New York City, and we were in this upper room, this up old loft. And we were sitting on the floor, just a group of young people with these these writers, and they were, you know, just talking to us. And one of them said, someone asked a question about the work that you do. Um, you know, why don't you do this type of work? And so, what 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 he said? It was Larry Neal. What he said is that this is this is my work here, and I have to focus. You see on my work and you have to make sure that you do your work. And so although that was like a loft and we all sitting on the floor and that was over like 40 something years ago, I still remember that you have to do your work. And you have to let other people do their, you know, their work. You can't ask them to be involved with your work if they have this work. The thing is that we have to love each other doing our our work. You know, I I, I never forget when I first started speaking on Montgomery Bus Boycott of 1955, I went down to Mobile, Alabama, and this Caucasian gentleman came up out of the audience and he thanked me and he said, you know, I used to be a racist. And I said, really, sir? And I said, well, you know what? I thank you for your authenticity. That's because... I'm given the I'm given the opportunity to, to just do my work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you mind reading one more poem to sort of close us out? Uh, yes. I, I really like this idea of um, that concept it has been uh very important to me and it's a corollary idea, which is be who you are. Uh, which is very similar to each person, you know, doing their own work. Obviously, um, in American society, that I think would um, help us uh, work through some of our issues. Uh, and I think in a, even in a church and local church context, um, I think it would help folks uh, kind of, if we focus on um, the work that we need to do for ourselves, and recognize that others are also on their own journeys, I think it can add um, a lot more harmony to our uh, community experiences.
2: Yeah, and you know, we have to, every summer, run a creative writing camp for um, children beginning at age nine for two weeks, and we write a book.
0: Well, wow, thank you for doing that.
2: Yeah, every <laughs> summer. And so, um, and we write a book each time. I can send you the link to, to some of the books the kids have written. And I, we teach the kids the um, poetic forms. We teach the haku, the tanka, and we. I want to get to the sonnet. And we have one boy in the group this year who was 11 and three fourths years old. And so at camp, i Miss Ramona, not Dr. Hyman. I'm sitting at the room, whatever, whatever it is. I have to receive two as a writer. And so I said to to, and and I'm constantly telling them, you have to do your work. Get your work done. This is your work. So this young man had written a sonnet, beautiful sonnet, but I thought two words needed to be changed. And I said, I want you to change the, the words here. He said, this is my poem. In essence, I have done my work. This is what I believe my work should be. And you cannot change my work and I respectfully said thank you after a little tussle. I won't change your poem and it's in the book. In closing this is a poem it's called a lyric of Oakwood for the enslaved. Go on over there to that there cemetery and you'll find the graveyard built on the vision of that white woman from Maine and 65 oak trees. The white woman from Maine is a prophet, they say, and in their grave are the bones of the enslaved. The bones ain't rattling no more. They all dead. It is the stories of the enslaved bones, the living folks got to remember the folks got to remembering how they had paid only slight attention to the enslaved bones. Got to remembering real good about Dred Scott. He grabbed freedom in a place where none was known. Yeah. The folks got to remembering, thought about the crab grass growing right on top of them bones, thought about the stories they left behind, all them stories just seeding dirt and grass. The living folk decided they was going to do something to pay respects, to let the self within know the enslaved bones, to sow the lies of them bones in memory. They built a message board out of stone, bought some chairs, prettied the place up with black-eyed Susans and holy scrubs, and had one of them old-time prayer meetings. They gathered. It started to rain. As the rain poured down to fertilize the enslaved bones, they raised a song in memory of the enslaved bones and maybe the white woman from Maine, they raised a song, a song.
0: Mm. Thank you so much.
2: Ellen G. White is truly one of my favorite people. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I feel like you share a prophetic vision for our community. And I thank you so much for sharing uh, your art and for sharing all the great stories as well today. I really feel like it was a rich experience talking with you.
2: Thank you, same here. Again, I congratulate you. You have a great, great legacy. Um, in terms of Dr. Roy, Mm -hmm. it is, it is yours. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I am very aware of, uh, the incredible impact of this organization, 53 years. So I'm looking forward to seeing how we can change our church and our community and our body politic. Um, And I'm really focused on sort of the global uh, reach of Adventism as well, Um, as more and more folks pay attention to spectrum outside of these shores. It's fascinating to see the hunger for a kind of open, um, diverse conversation. So I think our future is bright.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And as you think, um, you know, I want to encourage you to think of growing the church in terms of consciously, not necessarily changing the church.
0: Mm, thank you. I appreciate that. I will take that to heart.
2: Yeah. Appreciate you.
0: Thanks. I appreciate you too. Well, it's been great and I wish you the best. It's a new school uh, term. So um, God bless you as you go Uh Grow minds consciously.
2: <laughs> Thank you. I'm telling you, and they're going to grow minds. And if you're ever in Huntsville, stop by have dinner. Oh, lunch. I'd love
0: to do that. Thank
2: yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, we have we have fun.
0: I would <laughs> love to have, share a meal with you.
2: Absolutely. And take care. And happy New Year again.
1: Yes, I do, Sister White.
0: We will not fear.
1: The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the
2: lonely. Oh, I'll
1: never forget it.